As we dive into what we're talking about today, let me just ask you really quick, how many of you normally remember your dreams? All right, quite a few. I don't. How many don't, like, almost never remember your dreams? Yeah, it's usually, and you're probably in your marriage, it's probably split, right? My wife always, she's like, every morning, she's telling me about some crazy dream, and I'm like, I don't know, I slept. Um, But the other night, I remembered this dream, uh, and it was uh, somewhat disturbing to me. Um, It was, uh, I I was just like, I, I, I was awake, and I can't remember if I was, like, woke up in bed or if I was just hanging out, and it was uh, Saturday evening, late, and I just had this realization that I didn't go to church, and I was preaching. (laughs) You know those dreams when they're so real that, like, you actually feel like it's happening, you're not like, no clue you're in a dream, and I'm like, well, that's not good, (laughs) and then I start, like, so I'm freaking out, right? I'm going, oh, no. And I'm like, well, nobody called me. Nobody texted me. And so I'm thinking, well, what happened? I wonder, did Jason just get up and and preach? Hopefully, right? I don't know. Did they think I was dead and pray? I was like, I don't know. And then, of course, I I woke up and I'm like, oh, it's Thursday night. Right? So anyway, it was good being with the church last night at our Saturday night service, which we're grateful that um, more people are are, uh, coming out to. It's a great opportunity as we fill up on Sunday mornings to come out to to Saturday nights and give it a shot and uh, see how it works for you, see how you like it. Um, So that was a side point. But anyway, so that was a crazy dream. And actually in the scriptures, you see lots of crazy dreams and visions that sometimes come from God. Sometimes God gives these dreams to, to give us insight or to give his prophets insight in, in the scriptures. And they're one of the most famous ones is in Ezekiel. And it's actually in Ezekiel chapter 37. It's a um, kind of we get the idea. It's a waking vision that God gives this prophet. And many of you know it. It's the dry bones, the valley of dry bones. But for those that might not know this vision, um, he, he takes the prophet Ezekiel out into the valley of dry bones. This is the period of time when Israel goes into exile. And I thought game over. The whole thing's done. And he brings them, it brings this prophet, and he shows them this valley just full of bones everywhere. And you know, like the dry, dead bones when you go out in the desert, um, there's this one spot. Uh, we, we stop on the way up the Mesa because we have little kids, and they don't always go to the bathroom. When, when they were little, or they didn't go to the bathroom before we would leave, right? And so parents, you know this feeling. You're like 15 minutes into the car ride, and they're like, I got to go potty. And <clears throat> so there's this one spot we found that's a good spot to stop. And there's, we call it the bone spot because there's all these like dead animal carcasses, and it's so creepy, right? But they're all dried, and they're, they're you know, just out there. And that's the kind of the scene we get of this valley just filled with dead, dry bones. And then... Um, God asked the prophet, he's like, can these bones live again? And the prophet's like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Because from any human perspective, it's like there's no way these things could come back together. And so actually um, in, the, in the vision, um, God tells him, prophesy to the bones and tell them you're going to live again, right? And so as he's prophesying, these bones, and, and like put yourself in the vision, right? Freaky dreams, Put yourself in the vision like all these bones start rattling and then they start flying together, right? And connecting, reconnecting. And then you see tendons coming on to the bones. You know that scene from Indiana Jones where uh, 
the face guy's face melts off, you know. That's like reverse of that, you know. So all, all these like, you know, tendons come on and then you've got this sort of weird skeleton and then skin comes on the bones and, um, but they're still dead. All these like bodies now. And they're not, they're not alive, almost like a bunch of zombies hanging out out there, right? You, this is the kind of the picture you get. And so God tells him again, he says, now I want you to prophesy again. And I want you to, to prophesy to the winds, to the four winds to come from every direction. And the wind, the Hebrew word ruach is the same for the spirit, right? And he says, I want you to prophesy through the winds to come and bring life, breathe life into these dry, dead bones. And so the prophet prophesies. And now all these bodies, these zombie bodies come to life and they're a vast army. And then God says, hey, here's, here's, the, here's what this all means is I'm going to bring my people back and I'm going to put, bring them to life. I'm going to, I'm going to bring them together. And many scholars see this as a, uh, as a great in times fulfillment. I'm going to bring them in and then um, I'm, I'm going to fill them with my spirit. And these dead, dry bones that are seemingly done over are going to come back to life. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And this was at the heart of the hope this and the new covenant, that, that God would put a new heart and a new spirit in his people, that their sins would be remembered no more, that there would be this special relationship. This was at the heart of the Jewish hope and expectation around the time of Jesus. This was at the heart of the hope they had for what would occur when Messiah came. It was what they would study. It was what they would dream about. It was what they would think about. And let me just say, as we dive into this chapter in, in John here today, that some of you feel a lot like those bones. Some of you maybe, um, you kind of grew up around the church thing and it lost its, uh, its appeal. And, and it's been years or decades since you've really reconnected. And there's this part of you that just feels like it's, it's, it's dead inside and you're not sure. You're, you're, you're asking, God, could, could this come alive again? Some of you... Um, and you've had some amazing experiences with God and, and he's rescued you and saved you, but life has kind of beaten life out of you, right? And you feel like those, those dead, dry bones again in your heart. And I hope as we go through John chapter 3 today and over the next couple of weeks that it's going to breathe some hope and some life. This is classic gospel, the good news. This is one of the, the most famous and most... Um, just precious treasured chapters in all of the scriptures as we see the heart of the gospel and the heart of our God for us. And so in John chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in John chapter 2 and verse 23. And it says this, now while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And see, when you want to start talking about the gospel, really the place you have to start is, is this. It's the condition of humankind. 
what was in each person. He knew what was in each person. And see, our thinking in, in modern day uh, culture is sort of this twisted version of the gospel. And that is basically that we're going to end up saving ourselves. That the human race is basically at the core good. Humanism, naturalism, um, kind of the predominant thinking of the last 100, 150 years has been like that we as a, as a human species are the answer to all the problems we face. That science is the answer. If we can just, you know, figure out technology, we can essentially live forever, extend life as long as we want to, right? That, uh, that if we could just, through, through political systems, get the right people into power or drive the right things out of society, um, all these things, that somehow our problems will be solved and we can basically have a, a, a utopia on earth. Humanism. We are the answers to the problems we face. And the Bible actually um, has a completely different way of looking at this. And at the heart of the gospel is the truth of this, that there, yes, there's beauty in humanity because we are made in the image of God. You go back to Genesis. But there's also corruption and there's also decay. There's something dead inside. I had this mouse die in the wall in my like, home office. <laughs> Anybody have that, you know? And it's like, you just walk in and you catch a whiff of it. You're like, ew, right? There's something dead inside and you just know it. And it lasts for months. It's awful. <laughs> and there's something uh, in, the, in the worldview of scripture that says, while there's beauty in humanity, there's also at, at his core, when you dig deep, you're going to find some corruption. You're going to find fallenness. You're going to find brokenness. You're going to find sin. There's, a, there's, there's something that's not right. And I think this bears out with the reality of what you see in humanity, doesn't it? I mean, it fits reality. That's one of the beautiful things about scriptures. You look at the worldview that scripture has is that it actually matches reality because it is reality. Because God reveals to us truth about reality and what the reality is actually of the human race. In fact, most of the atrocities of the past century, you know, there's been like over 100 million people killed through genocides, um, primarily actually in, in Marxist-Leninist um, countries. And then, of course, you have the Holocaust and things. But most of the atrocities of the past century resulted from people who said, hey, we, we can solve our own problems. In fact, if we can just um, throw off the chains of oppression of this class and, and raise up the, the, the lower class, if you'll just get us into power, we're going to build some sort of utopia. And every time it's ended in corruption and genocide and destruction. Why is that? Because when corrupt people are given absolute power, absolute atrocities occur. That's, that's one of the things um, that our founders of this country understood and the way they, they did checks and balances and, and separation of powers was to actually limit power because they understood this about the heart of humankind. So Jesus, he knows what's in the heart of humankind. And you almost got to start there when you start with the gospel. Because there's a problem that needs a solution. The other beautiful thing about this, this verse that I see is, is the fact that when you come to Jesus, you don't fool him. Which is both scary until you get to know him. But it's also very revealing. He sees you just as you are. 
You can fool everybody else. You can put on a brave face. You can put on a persona on social media. But he knows you. He knows the you, the you that's really you, the deeper you. He sees you. You don't fool him. He knows what's in the heart of humankind. And the beautiful thing is he loves you anyway. And he came into this world for you anyway. Augustine, one of the famous forefathers of the faith, said this. He said, the problem is not that we sin, but that we are in a state of sin that needs a comprehensive solution. And that's at the heart of the gospel. That is what the gospel is for us. In John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. It says this. Now, now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. So remember, he knows what's in the heart of man, Anthropos in Greek. And now the very next sentence, there's no chapter headings and breaks in the original Greek text. So this squirrels right out of that. He knows what's in the heart of man. Case in point, here's one of them. A man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we see this guy named Nick, and he's a member of the ruling council. He's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were kind of like a combination of a, of a religious group and a political party, and they held themselves to the strictest religious standards. They were the best of the best. They were really good at being good. These guys had it dialed in. And he's also part of the ruling council, which means that Nicodemus was like a, a senator over religious and civil affairs. So there's a group of 70 people that, that governed um, Israel, essentially. And, and yeah, they were accountable to Rome under Rome's thumb. But basically, they made religious law, civil law. And then, so we see he, he's rich, he's powerful. And later on, Jesus will say, hey, you are the teacher of Israel. He's respected. This guy is a well-respected teacher. He's well-known. He, he speaks with authority. And out of this group, this group of the, the Sanhedrin and this group of the Pharisees, uh, at this time in history, they, there was this great expectation that the Messiah would come sometime around this time. They were expecting it. Because when the people of Israel were in exile, Hundreds of years before this, they, they went into exile in 587 B.C., the people of Judah. And there was a prophecy that says, I'm going to bring you back after 70 years. And Daniel was praying about that after the 70 years were almost up. And God revealed him that actually this period was, was going to be longer. Yes, there'd be a remnant that goes back. But essentially, there was going to be 77s, 490 years and that's the way that many people in the first century understood that and translated that. And, and they understood that at the end of that time, Messiah was come. So, so there was all this expectation. There had been false Messiah figures that, that came and started political revolutions, and, and it didn't go well at all. And so while there's both great skepticism of, of Messianic figures, there's also um, you know expectation among the people that one will arise. And so they send Nicodemus as a representative to go check this Jesus out and see because, man, the things he's doing, the rumors that they're hearing about him, the miracles. And then he did this crazy thing in the temple where he drove out the money changers. And probably some of these, you know, religious leaders actually thought, yeah, that needs to happen. They didn't have the courage to do it themselves. And so he comes, actually, verse 2, it says, he came to Jesus at night. 
And some scholars think this is because he was afraid to be seen with Jesus. Some people just think, hey, it was nighttime and he's chilling out on the roof, rooftop garden, no AC, hot, dusty Jerusalem. It's when you hang out on the roof and talk, right? We don't really know. He came at night. And I think many people have kind of, um, you know, given Nicodemus a hard time for coming at night. But here's what I love. He came to Jesus. He came. You just got to take that first step towards Jesus. We're going to talk next week about those steps towards Jesus and taking those steps. And for some of you, you're, like, being here today is your step towards Jesus. You're like, I- I'm just checking this out, and we're so glad you're here. Keep moving towards Jesus. Keep taking those steps, right? So he comes to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Rabbi, he actually addresses him with real respect. And actually, you kind of get the feeling like he's kind of buttering Jesus up. But he addresses him as teacher, which is a really interesting point, because actually Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He addresses him as teacher, and this is where so many people stop with Jesus. In fact, I bet a lot of the conversations you've had maybe in passing with coworkers, friends, family members, um, actually stop here with Jesus. Jesus, he was a great teacher. He was a good teacher. Basically the same point, place that, uh, that Nicodemus comes. Jesus, yeah, oh, I love Jesus. He was a great teacher. Man, he taught some great things. Like my favorite one, don't judge me. Don't judge me, bro. It's like the one verse everybody can quote from Jesus. It's a little misquoted. But anyway, uh, you know, judge not. Love your neighbor. Let the little children come to me. Don't kick the dog. Uh, Wait, I don't think that one was Jesus, but cat, I don't know. So people love that kind of uh, teacher. And, And that's where they come to Jesus and they stop there. Picking out a few things. Oh, Jesus was for the poor, which is true. And they typically stop there and and typically don't go on to the things of what Jesus actually calls us to when it comes to holiness and living our lives for him and and how we relate to our stuff and our possessions and generosity and how we relate to um, our sexuality and and what he's called us, the way he's called us to live in our moral life and the way he's called us to treat our husband and our wife and all these things, right? Right? Most of the time, they, they pick a couple things and just stop at Jesus as a good teacher. And actually, the, the, the amazing thing, and I think C.S. Lewis says it best. I quote this all the time. C.S. Lewis, the famous um, philosopher from the last century, he, he says, Jesus actually never left you the option of just thinking of him as a, as a good teacher. We talked about this in, uh, in April when we did the first chapter of this book and dove into it. He never left you that option. In fact, when you see Jesus' words and we'll see them all throughout this book. They, when they pick up stones to throw, to throw at him and kill him, the reason is because he's claiming to be God. John chapter 1, he's claiming to be God. You see this over and over and over again. And so the point C.S. Lewis makes is he actually never gave you the, to the option of stopping a good moral teacher. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he's the Lord of all. you got to come to grips with that, Right? Now, I think for a lot of the church, though, you've, you've encountered Jesus, and you're, you're good with that. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's my Savior. 
you've embraced him as Savior, but for so many people, it stops there and you don't actually dig into the teaching of how does, am I, is my life submitted to what Jesus says? You know, the Great Commission that Jesus gave his followers was to, to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to do what? Obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so many people stop at, you know, a prayer I prayed at camp or a youth group, and Jesus is my Savior, and it kind of stops there, and there's never a Jesus. You are my teacher. You are my rabbi. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to submit my life to your teaching. And so we need to approach Jesus as a teacher, but you never stop there. You need to embrace him as your Savior and as your Lord. And so Nicodemus comes and, and says, hey, teacher, good teacher. But I also love in here that he, his recognition of this thing about Jesus, which I think should be true about his followers, it was true of his earliest followers, and it actually transformed the world. It defeated, it overtook the Roman Empire. He says this, no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. There was something about Jesus and the way he lived his life that made it clear to this religious leader, God is with you. I don't know about you. I'm just here to investigate you. You may be a crazy guy, but clearly God is with you. And I think that, I wish, I wish that was true of every one of our lives as followers of Jesus. More so. That there was something about the way we live our lives, whether it's just in the power of the Spirit as we pray for people and, and, and see God answer prayers, in just the way we, we care for each other and love each other, the way that we, we're always pointing people towards Jesus, that there was something about us that was always like, God is with you. I don't know what those people, you know, they, they might be kind of crazy, but man, I think God is doing something in their midst. And this is what he sees in, in, in Jesus. And I think God wants to do so much more in us and through us, in our circles and the people he's placed around us. But like we talked about last week, so often we're just so distracted. Like we're so caught up in, in our little world, in our little kingdom, in the problems we face in, here and now. And, and so many days um, we don't even make any connection of our lives to the bigger picture of God's kingdom and what he's doing in this world. How many days, how many, how many weeks have you gone through where you, there wasn't even a, a, a real front top of mind awareness that God has placed you in this moment to point people towards Jesus, that that's your primary mission? And I think for most of us, it would actually be a pretty, fairly convicting thing, right? So Nicodemus is buttering him up getting ready to ask his list of 20 questions, vet him, see who he is, see where his theology is askew, either to confirm that this guy maybe has some merit or to write him off. And Jesus, I love this, he interrupts him. <laughs> Jesus does this all the time. And he gets to the deeper heart of the issue. So he's getting ready to unload off his 20 questions about, you know, the Messiahship and something. And Jesus cuts him right off in the middle of his opening statement and speaks to his heart. He says this, verse 3, Jesus replied, which is funny. I didn't see Nicodemus ask him a question yet. Jesus does this. He replied, very truly, I tell you, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is such an important statement. This is at the very heart of the gospel. This is really at the heart of what we're all about here as a church. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The kingdom of God, for those of you that may not be familiar with it, John only actually uses this term a couple times in his gospel. Um, the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, they, they talk about the kingdom of God all the time. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven, and it's synonymous. It means the same thing. They're talking about the same thing, the kingdom of God. It's uh, Dallas Willard, who is a famous um, theologian that's passed away recently. He said this. He says, God's own kingdom or rule is the range of his effective will where what he wants done is done. So the kingdom, it's such a big idea in Scripture. And Jesus bursts into the scene. We saw this in Luke where he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. That because of the things I'm doing, the actions I'm doing, actually the kingdom of God, it's come upon you. It's in your midst. And so um, we have... A theology that uh, was coined and made famous, a term made famous by a a theologian named um, Ladd, and he uh, calls it the already and the not yet, or the now and the not yet. And the heart, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, is there's been a a past um, fulfillment of the kingdom as Jesus comes and brings the kingdom, and it breaks into our midst, and Jesus says it's come upon you. And as Jesus ministers throughout the earth, people experience uh, a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come, right? But then there's a a future, there's a future fulfillment of the kingdom when it comes in fullness, when Jesus returns, when every tear will be wiped away from their eye and sickness and disease will be wiped away and um, the lion will lay down with the lamb, these beautiful pictures in scripture and creation itself even um, will be restored to God's original intention for it. There's this beautiful picture. Of the, of the glorious coming of the kingdom of God. And the Jews had this idea of the kingdom coming, and Jesus came and he says, it's, it's, it's breaking in. And then as the disciples went out, the kingdom of God continues to break in, and the kingdom of God continues to grow and spread. Jesus refers to it um, as like a mustard seed that starts out small and then begins, and it's, it's like leaven that leavens a whole loaf. And if you're here and you're part of the body of Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the kingdom of God. And it's grown all over the world. I mean, what an amazing prophecy, right? As Jesus declares and prophesies, hey, here's how the kingdom of God is going to be like. And now you look, and about a third of the world's population identifies with the name of Jesus. And people all over this world on this you know, 24-hour period have been meeting and praying and worshiping Jesus and hopefully living their lives as people who live as Jesus as their king. This is what it means to live now. And then as the kingdom of God, as we pray and the Holy Spirit moves in our midst and we pray for people and sometimes God comes and miraculously heals them and sometimes God frees them and delivers them from demonic oppression and and all sorts of stuff, um, we're seeing a breaking in of the kingdom of God. We're seeing what, we're getting glimpses and a foretaste of what it's going to be like in fullness when Jesus comes again. It's a beautiful picture. 
And Jesus says, if you want to experience the kingdom of God now, if you want to get into the kingdom of God now, and if you want to experience it to be part, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, if you want to experience heaven when, that, when heaven comes, if you want to be part of this thing in the future, and if you want to experience now, the only way you do that is by being born again. Born again. <laughs> I think uh, Nicodemus at this point, he's like, man, he didn't even let me get my question out. But how did he know, like, this is actually something I struggle with? I think deep in his heart, like so many people, he struggled to wonder, like, how can I be part of this? How can I have assurance that I can be part of this? And I think it's a question we all ask so many times. How do I have assurance that I can be part of God's kingdom? How do I experience that life now? Jesus said, I came to give them life and life in abundance. That's not just a future thing when he comes. We're supposed to experience that that abundant life now through his Holy Spirit that that he indwells us with. How do we experience that now? And how do we know that we'll be part of his kingdom when he comes again? How do, we, how do we know later on in this chapter, he'll, he'll say um, eternal life, life of the age to come, eternal life, both in its length and its quality. How do we know we get to be part of that? How do we know we have right standing with God? How do I know I measure up? And I think if people knew Nicodemus, they would actually be shocked to know that he struggled with that question. Because he's a Pharisee. He's one of the, he's, he's the one who's telling everyone else how to be right with God. The Pharisees should have more assurance than anybody on earth. They were the best of the best. They told you how to be right with God. And what they told you was be really, really, really good. Like there's a handful of laws on keeping the Sabbath. Um, that's fine. But we've added 1,500 to them so you can be sure you're being really good. Anybody want to try to sign up? Like check off that checklist? Some of you, you see faith as a checklist. And if I can just, hey, God, look at, I, I, this is my third week in a row at church. I threw a couple bucks in. My third week in a row. Haven't had, haven't had that habit in my life for a while. I'm doing good. I'm in. Have I tipped the scales enough in my favor? See, here's the problem. This was the world Nicodemus lived in. It was a world of behaviors that were designed to earn you a spot with God. But the problem, when you base your relationship or being in, when it comes to him, his kingdom, when it comes to finding favor with God, when you base that on on earning a way in, you never know how good is good enough. How good is good enough? If you haven't thought about that, you should. Because if you're, if you're basing your approach to relationship with God on if I could just be good enough, if I mean, just, you know, be consistent at church and get rid of these habits that have plagued me, um, I think I can tip the scales in my favor. How good is good enough? Should be a question that, that, that plagues you, actually. And I think it plagued Nicodemus. Because he recognized some things like, hey, there's some things I do pretty well. But then there's some things in the law that I just keep doing. I can't keep my heart from coveting. There's these things, and I recognize, and actually God has placed 
a conscience in humanity that unless it is seared by repeatedly offending it, there's something in the heart of all humankind that recognize what we started out talking about, that there's a fallenness inside of us, that there's a brokenness. And instead of coming and saying, hey, I'll, I'll give you, um, I'll, I'll tell you exactly, you know, the real checklist, Jesus says, actually, there's something that has to fundamentally shift and change within you. You need to be born again. Being a religious person, it's not enough. Being born into the right family, it's not enough. Your dad was a minister, great. Doesn't do a thing for you. Being born, being born into this world is not enough. And I think this is actually... Um, something that's become very popular in our culture, that basically I exist, therefore I'm in. It's the, it's the fallacy, the heresy of universalism. I, I was born and therefore I'm in. And throughout the scriptures, um, the scripture will speak to that and Jesus will speak to that in his own words and he'll say, no, actually... Um, the only something has to fundamentally happen in your heart and in your soul and in your life. You have to be born again. And this, I think, really threw Nicodemus for a loop. He wasn't expecting this, but he's got he's smart. He got a quick wit. He recovers quickly. And I think the first half of this question, I think he's he's like seriously trying to like understand this. Like, how can someone be born? When they are old. Like, how does that work? If uh, you've watched The Chosen, which is this great series on, on uh, Jesus' life, and it's a really interesting scene with Nicodemus there where he's like, um, my mom's dead. You know, I'm old. My mom got old and died. How, how, how does this work? But then I think he, like, cracks a sly grin on the side of his face I think this, there's humor in here. And he's like, surely they cannot enter a second time in his mother's, into their mother's womb and be born. Don't think about that for too long, right? Well, the rabbis actually had a great sense of humor. And I, I think Jesus probably chuckles right here. And he's like, no, no, no. You're missing the point, Nicodemus. It's a metaphor. And in the Greek, born again can either mean um, a second time or it can mean from above. And I think at the heart of it, there's, there's both meanings in what Jesus is saying here. And there's actually, when you stop and think about the first part of Nicodemus' question here, how can someone be born when they are old? Um, there's something very unsettling about his statement. And I think for so many people, this is a stumbling block of coming to Jesus and of experiencing this in their own lives is because if you think about it, when you are old, the thought of being born again and coming into this world as a tiny little helpless baby isn't very appealing, is it? To think of the, having someone else um, have to feed you, care, being completely helpless, I mean, human babies, when they're born, they're completely helpless, right? They're, what else are they? Completely dependent. Like you, you can't just walk away from a baby, right? They're completely dependent. Completely helpless. Completely at the mercy 
of their parent. And that's the point, actually. That part of coming to Jesus, part of experiencing this new birth, is actually a dependency on him. It's a heart that comes to him and says, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I keep stumbling and failing. And yeah, I can clean up my life for a little while. And I can be consistent for a little while. But I keep trying and I can't do it on my own. I need you. That's at the heart of the gospel. Is coming to him with a heart like a child. In fact, at one point he says, um, you need to actually have the faith like a child. What is he saying? There's a dependency. There's a humility. There's, a, there's something in that that recognizes I, I don't have what it takes. It's very opposite than that kind of the humanism thing of we can be our own savior. We have what it takes to fix all of our problems. It's that coming to him and saying, I, I need you. I need your life. The other part of being born again um, is that you, you really didn't have much to do with your first birth, did you? No. And that's the other part of humility. Is understanding that this is the work that I need you to do in my heart. That my part is simply a response and trust to you. Saying yes to you. But I'm not earning it. I'm not cleaning up enough to, to make it so that I'm worthy. And yes, there's repentance from sins and all those things, but it's an acknowledgement. The gospel at the heart is an acknowledgement that this is a work that you do in my heart. That I'm dependent on you. Jesus answered him again. He says, very truly, I tell you, let me, let me explain this. You're not getting the metaphor here. Let me explain this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Something fundamental has to happen. I think there's some int very interesting little things in this one statement. And the first one is, is just the reality that there's a spiritual realm. That you are more than just atoms stuck together in electrons and cells and synapses firing. You are more. You have a soul. You have a spirit. I read this interesting book um, by a psychologist <laughs> a while back, and it was like, when did you start like chopping off parts of yourself? At what point are you no longer you? Like, is this whole thing just a brain, just synapses firing? Is that the whole thing? And the conclusion of Scripture, and even as scientists research this, is there's something more, there's something deeper. There's a spiritual realm. It's a reality. You know, on this holiday, actually, um, where, you know, in the midst of fun and sugaring up all the kids and everything, you know, there's also a lot of dark things that happen around the world. And it's, there's this one famous um, 
uh, theologian, Baptist theologian, and it kind of funny statement. He said Halloween was his, his favorite holiday, which is like, what? That's kind of weird for this conservative um, theologian. And he said, the reason is it gave me a framework for understanding my fears. And one thing you got to say is that for a bunch of people who pretty much believe in a material realm, there's a time when people think about things deeper and, and the reality of darkness and the reality of a spiritual realm. And there is a dark spiritual realm. I've been reminded of this time, you know, over years in ministry, uh, in missions work. Uh, one time in Thailand, we were up in this little village that this, this church that we built with our friends from Outpour Movement and uh, doing ministry up in there. And there's this lady we were praying for just manifesting a dem- demonic spirit. Like there was something deeper going on. Um, I could give you example after example. That's not the point. The heart of the gospel is that there's a deeper part, there's a spiritual part, and you need to know that you're serving, you're serving the right team. Because your actions are feeding into one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. This is a theme you see all throughout Scripture. In fact, um, the, the deeper part of us that longs and understands there's something more, C.S. Lewis Uh, has this brilliant quote. He says this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. He says that in mere Christianity. You were made for another world. You were made for something deeper. There's a spirit. Your spirit cries out to know the living God. In fact, Paul tells us that actually we were dead and had to be made alive. Here's what he says, that when you understand uh, you're you're walking, but you're kind of a zombie when it comes to spiritually, right? He says this in Ephesians 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed in the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And Jesus in the scripture is saying, hey, there's something that must happen on the inside of a person. There's nothing you can do physically to assure your place in the kingdom of God. Instead, there's a life that has to be brought into you, and it's a life that comes from being born of the spirit. You need to have a spiritual birth. The spirit brings your spirit to life. Colossians 2, 13. It says this, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And how do you believe that? Or how do you receive that? You believe that, right? That's what we discovered throughout this chapter. How do you receive that? You trust him. You trust him. You receive that gift. You embrace what he's done. 
I'm going to close with this verse, verse 7. I'm going to invite Winston to come back up. Jesus says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Like, you're one of the smart ones, right? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And as Jesus here says this phrase, the wind, the ruach, the wind, the Spirit, it blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes. So is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, one of the, you know, the most prestigious scholars of his time, should have, his mind should have come back as Jesus talked to the wind. It should have come back to where we started, Ezekiel 37, to that prophecy, that great hope for new covenant that, that he had said, I'll put a new heart and a new spirit in you. As Jesus speaks these words out, his mind should have flown back to this idea of these bones coming to life and then the spirit as, as, as Ezekiel prophesied to the spirit or to the winds and says, blow on these bones, bring them to life. He should have made the connection right there. His mind should have come back. That was the thing they were hoping for. And Jesus shows up and he says, I'm here. The new covenant is here. The promised life is here. And one scholar writes this, In a rooftop conversation that took place during this breezy Jerusalem evening, the Son of God began to explain to Nicodemus how all the pieces fit together, the spirit and the water, dry bones and a desert wind, the new covenant and a new life. Would you stand? As we close, let me just say, some of you in this room or some joining us online your, your response to this is really a recognition, and maybe you've had this as, as we've been talking, like, wow, I've been trying to earn my way. I've been trying to tip the scales in my favor. Um, your response is actually a response to this offer for new life. It's a free gift. You need to be born again. And so as we close um, in this song, well, sometimes I lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to tell you, as we close in this song, I want to encourage you to call out to him, to call out to Jesus, to confess that you believe he's more than just a good teacher, that he's the son of God, that he died and rose again for you. And then say, I'm going to fully trust in you. And I want to turn my life to you and live for you. Would you give me your Holy Spirit and enable me to live for you? I want you to do that as we close. And for a bunch of you others in the room, um, you need to be born again again. Here's what I mean. I don't mean you get saved twice. But what I mean is some of you feel that dead, dry feeling in your heart and in your soul right now. You know all the right words. But you need to experience the fresh wind of his presence to restore the joy of your salvation, to restore your hope, to recenter and refocus your life on what matters most. And what I want to just invite you to do, if you want to be brave right now as we sing this song, is just stretch your hands out to him. 
We can just bow our heads. I want to pray for you. Lord, I just pray, come Holy Spirit and blow in this place on hearts that desperately need to be refreshed and renewed by your life. Would you never let us lose the joy of our salvation? Would you restore that in us, the beauty of what you've done for us in such a way that it would motivate us to experience you? So as we close in this song, just uh, call out to him. Ask him to move in your heart.